We're talking about these things because we're recognizing that God has given us a mission and a vision for this place. And when we came into this building, you'll see God is able above my head here. Um, this was actually stamped on the plans of the building itself. And we took on this phrase from Valley Bible Church, who we bought the building from, recognizing that God had worked through them for many decades and that he was working in us, uh, hopefully for many decades to come, however long God gives us to be here. Um, and so we wanted to honor that tradition. And that phrase, God is able, is not something they made up. It is a scriptural idea. God is able. It is in the scriptures that God is able. The word is actually powerful. God it has the ability to do things. And we have seen that as part of our story. And so we're taking just a few weeks uh, before we start our next series um, in a biblical book to talk about that phrase and where it comes up in scripture. And I want to invite you to turn today to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9. We'll be starting in verse 18. It's printed for you in the bulletin as well. And we see a series of stories of Christ healing. Most of these stories, not all of them, are in other Gospels other than Matthew's Gospel. Matthew gives us the shortest versions. He tells us these stories very quick, telescoping uh, what he wants us to see about Jesus the healer. And so let's read these stories of these healings together, starting in verse 18 of chapter 9. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. Become and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and said to her, <clears throat> and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the rulers of the house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. <clears throat> and when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout that district. And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and said to him, Jesus, said to him, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord. So, 
I, uh, I actually love musicals. This is a little-known uh, fact about me. But uh, there was a popular musical that came out just a uh, few years ago called Dear Evan Hansen. And I'm guessing, just by a show of hands, has anybody seen uh, Dear Evan Hansen before or the movie? Perhaps a few uh, folks have seen it. And uh, it's a story about a high school, uh, despair, loneliness, and, um, and fame. And it's a very touching uh, movie and uh, musical. But you may have seen, if you haven't seen the, the movie or the musical, you may have actually heard one of the songs from that. Because during the pandemic, the last couple of years, there was a viral video that came out um, that was uh, on the Late Late Show with, with James uh, Corden. And what this video was, was the cast of the musical, and they were singing this kind of in a Zoom style. They were all in different places. It was the pandemic, and you, you, you see these people, you know, uh, coming in and singing the song all together, this whole cast. And uh, they're doing an a cappella, and it's, it gave people uh, real hope. It, it, it gave people hope during the pandemic. Um, as they were singing this, they were sharing it, and it kind of became this moment uh, for a lot of people that they pointed to that had hope. I think because the, the song asks real questions. Here's some of the lyrics from the chorus. He says, have you ever felt like nobody was there? Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of nowhere? Have you ever felt like you could disappear, like you could fall and no one would hear? Real questions of despair for this high school student. Actually, it's a brilliant line that you could fall and nobody would hear because he actually falls. There's more to the story. I won't reveal it, but he falls out of a tree and nobody is there to help him. And so he's, he's singing this song and he's asking these questions. He's, he's not well. He's not doing well in life. And he keeps asking these questions. He falls from a tree, he breaks his arm, and no one is there to help him. And so that becomes a metaphor for his life. He has no friends. He has no parents to help him. He is unwell. And then the chorus comes in with this answer. And it says, even when the dark comes crashing through, even when you need a friend to carry you, and when you're broken on the ground, you will be found. So let the sun come streaming in because you, you'll reach up and you'll rise again. Lift your head and look around. You will be found. And this is the name of the song. You will be found. And that, that gave a lot of hope to a lot of people. And it's a great song musically. It's very fun to listen to. But when Becca, my wife, showed that song to me, I actually remember the first response that I had, which was this. That's one of the most hopeless things I've ever heard. Why? Because at the crucial moment of the song, you will be found. He switches to the passive voice. You will be found. The passive voice. That's what your English told, teacher told you not to write in when you're writing an essay. The passive voice avoids responsibility. Let me give you another example. Kids are playing baseball in the street, right? The classic example, the, the ball goes through the window, crash, and then they have to tell their parents that they've broken the window. And he tells the story, well, you know, we were playing out there, and then, you know, uh, they threw the ball, and I hit it, um, and then the window broke. 
right at the crucial moment of that story, it switches to the passive voice, right? The window broke, young Johnny, or did you break the window? We want him to take responsibility. And at the crucial point of the song, when you are feeling this way, when you feel like nobody is there, when you feel like you're forgotten in the middle of nowhere, here's your hope. You will be found. At the crucial point, the hope of the song is vague. Who will find you? How do you know that you'll be found? How do you know that you'll be okay? If you are unwell, how do you know that things will be better? And I think that's where a lot of people are. A lot of us maybe are in this place of vague hope. Vague feelings that things will get better. But there's really no reason that we should believe that, that we should think that. And I want us to talk this morning about Christ having the ability to make us well because I don't want our hope to be vague. I want it to be specific. Can we actually have a hope that we will be found, that we will be made well, that the things that are hard about our lives will be made better? The central question in this passage comes in verse 28 when these blind men come to Jesus and Jesus asks them this question, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able to heal you? And they say to him, yes, Lord. He is able. God is able. Christ is God himself. Christ is able to heal. And again, I like this account of Matthew's gospel because he gives us these stories that are explored elsewhere, but he gives us the short version. It's like he's, he's trying to get to the point. This girl who has died, who we know from Mark's gospel is Jairus' daughter. This woman who has had an issue of blood, two blind men and a mute man, all healed. And so let's look at these stories of healing and see Christ is able to heal. There's four different kinds of suffering that he heals here. Let's take them in reverse order. First, there is spiritual suffering. Look at verse 32 with me. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man was a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. The first kind of suffering is a spiritual suffering. This man has a physical problem. He's not able to speak, but it's rooted, we're told, in a spiritual problem that he is demon-possessed. Because when Jesus removes the demon, he's able to speak. Now, you may think, um, is this just an example of kind of backward science in the Bible? When you know, they, they had somebody that was sick, uh, they, they believed that it was always demons. Well... Um, no, illnesses in Scripture sometimes are attributed to demon possession, and sometimes they're not. They were able to tell the difference. They weren't just dumb because it's an older time. And yet they attributed this to demonic activity. They were able to see that this man was not just mute because he was born mute, but he was mute because of a spiritual attack. This man was under suffering because he was being attacked by the enemy. And Jesus makes him well. All right, we're moving fast. This is spiritual suffering. Jesus makes 
this mute man well who has been possessed by a demon. Then he gives examples of physical suffering. Just before this mute man, you have examples of two different types of physical suffering. First, it's an example of inborn physical suffering. These two blind men that Jesus meets in verse 27. And Jesus passed from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. We have two blind men who have uh, most, almost certainly been born blind from birth. In any case, it doesn't seem to be of any fault of their own or because they have a demon. And we know that Jesus has compassion on the blind. We've seen this story before in John chapter 9. He heals a man who is born, from, uh, born blind. And he tells his disciples when he heals this man, in this case, he doesn't just heal him by touching him or by saying you're healed. He heals him by spitting into the ground and making a mud cake and putting it over his eyes. He tells the disciples, this man has not sinned, nor has his parents sinned, in order so that he would be blind. He was born into this suffering, and the same is true of these two blind men. The presence of sin in the world, whether it is our sin or anyone else's, affects us. It brings suffering into the world. All of us suffer physically because we are born into sin. And some of us, more than others, are born into this suffering. You don't always have control over what kind of suffering your body experiences. So don't let any Christian tell you, no matter how well-meaning they are, that they always know exactly why you are sick or why you are suffering in some kind of way, because they don't. The Scripture says that it's mysterious. Sin has come into the world, and it's affected all of us, but it's affected all of us in different ways. And sometimes it is physically. But Jesus uses their faith to heal them. Verse 29, then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Jesus heals them. He brings their physical condition back. That's not the only kind of suffering. There's also chronic physical suffering. This is suffering that this woman wasn't born with, but she actually had later in life, and it became a chronic problem. This woman who is bleeding, verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned to her and he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Here's a woman who has been hemorrhaging blood. Literally, it just says she has been bleeding for 12 years. We don't know if that's constant or if it's come and gone. But this has been an example of great suffering in her life. Chronically suffering, chronically unwell. Mark's account, Mark's gospel gives us even more details. It says that this woman has spent all that she had. This has drained her financially. And she's not getting better. She's getting worse. Luke's gospel tells us that no physician could heal her. 
And Luke would know because he was a doctor. So it's not just him as a writer. It's his professional opinion. No one could make her well. And she touches one of the fringes of Jesus' tassels, believing that it will make her well, and it does. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Emphasizing to her that it wasn't the ritual of of touching the, the fringe that made her well. It was actually her faith that made her well. Now, I want to pause for just a second and talk about that because I know that we all have questions going through our minds right now. Like, am I guaranteed uh, to be made well by Jesus? And what is the relationship between faith and healing? Because Jesus says here, your faith has made you well. And he also says to the men who were born blind, he says, "Um, according to your faith, be it done to you. So what is the relationship between someone's faith and their healing. There are many who would say, many well-meaning Christians who would say, there is a one-to-one correlation between your faith and your healing. In other words, if you have faith, you can be healed. If you have faith, relative, a relative amount of faith, then you can be healed that relative amount. One-to-one correlation. But of course, if we say that, then we have to say that the inverse of that is also true. If you are not healed, that means your faith isn't strong enough. Many well-meaning Christians believe this and cite this passage, but I want to tell you this morning, that's not exactly what the Scriptures teach. What is the relationship between faith and healing? The Scriptures does not teach that it's a one-to-one correlation. Let me tell you why. Let me give you four brief reasons from the Scripture to tell you why that cannot be the case. The first reason is that we have a translation issue in this passage. So some people will come to this passage and say, according to your faith, be it done to you. So in other words, according to how much faith you have, then you can be healed that much is what we hear in English. But that's not exactly what it says. What it actually means is, with reference to your faith, the fact that you have faith means that you can be healed. He's not, making a, he's not making a measurement analysis. He's not saying, according to your faith, like according to how much faith you have, then you can be healed. That's not what it says. What it, that's what we hear in English, but it's not what it says. He's saying, with reference to your faith, right, because you have faith, you can be healed. So... That's the first reason. The second reason is that Jesus himself tells us that the amount of faith is not the important thing. When he talks about faith, he uses the smallest examples that he can, the smallest measurements. Later in this book, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 17 and 18, he's going to give us the examples of faith, and they are a mustard seed. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, And and then the next chapter, you have to have faith like a child, the smallest human being, and the smallest seed are the examples of faith. Third reason. For Scripture, uh, suffering is not a question of if, but when. Suffering is not something that we can't escape. The Scriptures tell us when we have various trials, that James tells us, when you encounter trials, it doesn't say if. It doesn't say those who have weak faith will encounter various trials. It says we all will. This is only one place in the Scripture that says this. You can't say that um, 
you know, if you have faith, you won't have suffering without going against a lot of Scripture. And the fourth reason is the examples of Scripture. Some of the greatest sufferers were the greatest people of faith. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, some mysterious ailment of his body or his mind, and God would not remove it from him. And he prayed, and God said no. Did God say, if you had more faith, then maybe I would do that for you, Paul? He doesn't do that at all. We're not going to say that Paul is an example of someone of little faith, right? Uh, What about Job? There's no one more righteous than Job in the Scriptures, but there is no one who suffered more in his day than Job. So there cannot be a one-to-one correlation between faith and the relief of suffering. But what is the connection? Because Jesus says, because of your faith, you are made well. The answer is that the strength of our faith is a reason for God's healing in this life, but it's not the only reason, and it's not a sufficient reason. What I mean by that is the strength of our faith is sometimes recognized by God, and he brings healing He has done that in real time, but it's not the only reason, and it's not a sufficient one. It's not like we can have enough faith that we are healed. Here's the bottom line. God may use your faith to heal you, or he may use your faith to help you endure suffering until the end when he heals you, when he makes you well. Either way, faith in Christ in the end makes us well whether it's in this life or the next. And he is the only one who can. He is the only one who guarantees. It's not vague. He makes us well. He is the only one who can complete our healing. If you believe in Christ, you will be healed either in this life or the next, and faith will be the means to that healing. There's a couple other examples of suffering in this passage. First, an emotional suffering. We come now to the first story that we read about Jairus' daughter. This ruler approaches Jesus. Mark tells us his name is Jairus, and he's a father in agony, and he asks Jesus to follow him, and Jesus rose and followed him, verse 19. And then we have this story of the woman in between, but when he gets to this house where this girl has died. He meets the funeral mourners. Look at verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler of the house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. They're making a commotion. They're mourning. There's grief, and this grief is noisy. You know, funerals in our day are are quiet, whispered affairs. They're places of silence. But in the ancient world, grief was very noisy. Even the poorest households were required to hire two flute players and a professional wailer so that someone could be heard wailing at all times for someone's life who is lost. Someone to give witness to the wrongness of this death. And this house is full of emotional grief. But he sends them out. He says the girl is not dead but sleeping. And that gets an emotional response as well. Indignant laughter. And that can be part of grief as well. 
Because if what Jesus is offering here is a cheap parlor trick, they don't want anything to do with it. He should go somewhere else. Maybe he's getting too big for his britches. Maybe, maybe he's overextending himself. Don't taunt us here, Jesus. Don't say that she's asleep when she's dead. They mock Jesus because he, they think he's going too far. Do you not think we know what death is? They're in the midst of emotional suffering because of the last kind of suffering, the ultimate suffering, which is death. This girl has died. And this death, even in the death, Jesus has made her well. He reverses her suffering. He makes the girl well through the power of the resurrection. Look at verse 25. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went throughout the district. Death is the ultimate suffering. It is suffering's greatest achievement. It is the wages of sin. It's the very first consequence of sin that was given to Adam and Eve. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But now, through Jesus... Death has been swallowed up in victory. It has lost its sting. And this greatest penalty, the ultimate suffering, has been removed. I ask us this question that the blind men were asked by Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus is able to make you well, even in the sleep of death? Every single one of us in this room are sufferers. We are suffering from something. Some of us have physical pain that we've talked about this morning. Some of us are suffering from spiritual pain and attack. Some of us are suffering from emotional pain and grief. Some of us have anxiety. Some of us have a combination of all of those things or some of them. None of us are fully well. And regardless of what combination you have, the greatest suffering will come to all of us. The great leveler, which is death, the enemy, and it is completely unavoidable. How can you believe that you will be made well when you know that you will die? That's really a question this passage is asking us, and the answer is right here what Jesus gives us. The answer must be in the resurrection. Because Jesus is showing us what his ultimate power is. It's not just to make people well from sickness or from anxiety or pain. It is to make us well completely. That is to give us life, to raise the dead. This is something that he himself is going to experience. He goes to the cross and he dies. And he suffers immensely before he dies. And then he gives in to the ultimate suffering. But then he is made alive. He is raised from the dead, and the scriptures tell us that that resurrection was the first fruits of the resurrection that we all are promised if we are in him by faith. All of us that are in him are made well on the last day. You will be found. You will be found. But that finding has an object. It is Jesus himself. Like Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, having been found in him, not with a righteousness of my own that was through the law, but, but found in him through faith in the resurrection. 
That is exactly what the hope is. Now you may be wondering, why doesn't Jesus do it now? And now you're asking the questions that the Scriptures do themselves as well. Why tarry? Why wait? Why aren't you coming quickly, Lord? And the answer the Scripture gives is that He doesn't count slowness the way that we count slowness, but He's patient, not wanting any to perish. But surely, Jesus, you could do more now. Why didn't Jesus just set up a 24-7, you know, seven days a week healing clinic? Why didn't he just heal everyone? We have four examples of healing in this passage. These are healed right in a row. But are they the only ones in the crowd who are suffering? Of course not. The world is full of suffering then and now. Why not heal more? What this question ignores is this. Suffering has a source. You can't remove suffering without removing the source of suffering, and that is what Jesus came into the world to do. We brought sin into the world and continue to bring sin and suffering into the world. Jesus came first to deal decisively with sin, and he comes again to make us completely well. That is what the Scripture tells us. Why is there a gap between those things? That is the question of the ages, and we're told in Scripture that is where our faith is tested. That is where we live. We live in between the two ages, and we are called to have faith in his coming because he will make us well. Why would we talk about this right now? God is able. He's able to make us well because this is the vision of this church, and it's the vision of God's church everywhere. We are called to be people of hope, and that hope has a specific and definite thing in mind. It's Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. He is the source of healing. We're called to be a hospital of sinners. Right here at 18th Street in Osborne, this is the place where we are made well in Christ. It's the place of faith, first and foremost, where people can come to faith In this church, we want to preach the gospel that I'm doing this morning, that it's only in Christ that you can be made well for you to hear that and you to respond with faith for the first time or for your faith to be strengthened. And as we come to the table, we're going to take of Christ and be strengthened by him again. This is our ministry, to believe that the healing that Jesus has done in our hearts, first and foremost, is only the first fruits of the resurrection that he is bringing into the whole world, that he will make everything well. He has promised to do that. And it's not vague. We don't have to just believe that it's possible to be well, that it's possible for the things to turn around, that it's possible for us to be found at the critical moment. We can put our faith in Christ and know that he is the one who finds us and makes us well. Let's pray.